Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Biome Podcast. I am Graham and this is the podcast all about zoology and ecology. Before we get too far into the episode, I wanted to talk about the new section that we added in the last episode. And that was the community suggestions of interesting people or accounts, or in the case of this episode, websites to follow. Feel free to nominate any zoology-related resource you feel might be of interest to those who like zoology or ecology. They can be writers, Instagrammers, video bloggers, documentarians, or just about anyone you can think of that puts out exceptional zoological or ecological content. Our first community suggestion comes from Amanda Wayhill. They suggested we have a look at the site lostandfoundnature.com. This website understands that much of the talk around nature and wildlife recently has been about animal species going extinct, especially with COP26 in the last year. This website attempts to shed light on the exciting news when an animal, once thought to be extinct, is found still living and the struggles undergone to bring them back from the brink. Currently, the site lists 25 species of animals that were thought to be extinct for a range of time, one as long as three centuries, another over 10,000 years, and still another thought to be extinct for 150 million years, all of them found still living. Each species has a beautifully written history about how the species was rediscovered, as well as a few interesting facts about the species in question. For example, Did you know that the red-crested tree rat, a native of South America, has only been spotted three times in the last century? I probably won't be doing an animal spotlight about them as it'll take a lot of research for that one. So definitely have a look at lostandfoundnature.com and read some really good news as well as interesting facts about creatures we thought had been lost. Now. If you have anyone or any site you think people should be following, please let us know. You can leave us a voice note on Spotify, use the contact form on our website at www.biome.media, or send us an email to questions at biome.media. Okay, in the last episode, I asked a trivia question, which was, what color is a polar bear's skin? This question seemed a lot easier and I got a lot of answers. However, I want to congratulate the first three correct answers. So congratulations to Lincoln Airy, Charlotte Maria, and Garrett Utilar for getting the correct answers. Despite the fur of the polar bear being white to camouflage it against the snow, the skin of the polar bear is actually black. It's thought that this is because black absorbs as much heat as possible in the exceptionally cold environment that they live in. So, as for this week's trivia question, let's see who can answer it. I will give a shout out to the first three people who send me an email with the correct answer. Make sure you include your name in the email, as well as your answer, obviously. Or you can also go to www.biome.media and use a contact form on the site to submit your answer. Now, for the question on this episode. What part of their body do butterflies use to taste with? Be sure to send your answers to questions at biome.media or again, you can go to the website at www.biome.media and use the contact form. What part of their body do butterflies use to taste with? 
I just wanted to remind you that you can visit the site and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode or you can read our field notes while you're there. So, let's see what's in store for today's Animal Spotlight. Hello, and welcome to this episode's Animal Spotlight, the section where we explore what we know about the life of one of this world's fascinating creatures. In this episode, let's take a look at the tiger salamander, which is a type of mole salamander. Mole salamanders belong to a genus of salamanders known scientifically as Ambistoma. They are native to North America and contain some interesting species like the axolotl, which we will talk about in another episode coming soon. They're called mole salamanders because they spend most of their adult lives living in burrows underground. These burrows can be abandoned by other animals or they can be dug by the salamanders themselves. It just depends on the species. Mole salamanders eat invertebrates like insects, spiders or worms that happen to wander into their burrows. The one time that adults do return to water and that's generally to the pond or water source of their birth is to lay eggs. They lay large clusters of eggs that resemble floating jelly. Now salamanders, and by extension mole salamanders, have a bit of a different life cycle than we're used to seeing with mammals. They have a larval stage. When these clusters of eggs hatch, the larval stage of the salamander comes out. At this particular point, the salamander looks a bit like a tadpole, which is the equivalent stage in a frog. The salamander larvae have three pairs of external gills protruding from the sides of their head. These gills look like large feathery ears, but they are used for the purpose of breathing underwater. It's how the salamander gets oxygen. Shortly after hatching, the salamanders grow legs. While the salamander still lives in the water, the legs stay very weak and underdeveloped because the water pressure helps hold up the body weight. They just don't need to be as strong. They also don't need eyelids as their eyes will stay moist while living underwater. Salamanders will generally reach the size of an adult before they undergo metamorphosis to become adults. But there are some exceptions to that that we will touch on soon. When they undergo metamorphosis, their thyroids produce a hormone known as thyroxine. Some quick background information here. Hormones are compounds that flow between cells. They are a way for cells to communicate and time their reactions to various conditions, like growth, for example. In this particular scenario, thyroxine flows from the salamander's thyroid to other parts of the body. And depending on which cells it interacts with, it produces a different response. For example, in the legs, the bones become more dense and stronger, while in the head, the eyes develop eyelids and the gills retreat back into the side of the head. In the torso, the lungs fully develop and the salamander switches from breathing underwater to breathing oxygen. In the skin, the skin becomes thicker and less permeable to water. This means less water loss, so the salamanders don't have to spend as much time in the water. 
It also likely means that the salamanders are able to retain more water from their urine, similar to how our kidneys regulate water loss um, depending on how much water we drink. But I wasn't able to find any studies on that, so don't quote me on it. Some species of mole salamanders aren't able to produce thyroxine. Probably the most famous example of this is the axolotl. This means that throughout their lives, the axolotl retains juvenile characteristics, like no eyelids, giant feathery gills, and the necessity to live in water. So let's look specifically at the tiger salamanders now. They are the largest species of ambistoma or mole salamanders, growing to a size of 15 to 20 centimeters, or adversely, six to eight inches. The adults have relatively short snouts and strong legs with a relatively thick trunk of a body. They are usually covered in yellowish spots on a dark black or brown background, which helps provide camouflage when they leave their burrows and have to walk through leaf litter. They are opportunistic hunters, feeding mostly on insects, snails, slugs and worms. However, they will also feed on baby snakes, newborn mice, or other smaller salamanders if the opportunity presents itself. They have been known to turn cannibalistic at times too, eating other tiger salamanders, but that seems mainly to happen when there is an abundance of predators and very little prey for the tiger salamander. Tiger salamanders are found throughout North America, but are most commonly found on the East Coast. As mentioned earlier, they spend most of their time in the burrows, but they emerge to lay their eggs. The most common places where they lay their eggs are in cattle pools, vernal pools, or flooded swamps. In their larval stage, the young take about three months to reach their adult size. However, depending on where they are in their range, they can metamorphose earlier and continue to grow after they become adults. When the young are in seasonal pools or further north, they can metamorphose before they reach adult size, as the growth season is shorter and the further north you go. Since the larvae are entirely aquatic, they need to change into adults before they can leave the pond or pool that they were born in. If they're far north, for example, in Canada, where the northern portion, which is the northern portion of their range, the pools will start thawing around late April to early May. The ponds and pools will start freezing around mid-September to mid-October, which means there is a fairly short growing season. Due to this, the tiger salamanders will metamorphose earlier, which will allow them to leave the ponds earlier so they can have ample time finding prey and putting on weight as well as looking for a suitable place to burrow before winter hits. Since the tiger salamanders are burrowers though, they require loose soil to live. The burrows will help them not dry out, as it will be cooler and not in direct sunlight, but also allows them to find their prey as the burrows will attract a lot of insects, snails, slugs and worms looking for a place to um, hide during the heat of the day or hibernate in the winter. Originally, tiger salamanders were considered to be one species from the northern part of their range in Canada to the southern end of the range in Mexico. The reason was that the population showed very little variation. 
However, if an individual from the northern end is placed next to one from the southern end, the differences are a lot more pronounced. Since then, the tiger salamander population has been broken up into four species. You have the regular tiger salamander and the smaller, more localized species of the barred tiger salamander, the California tiger salamander, and the plateau tiger salamander. Using genetic um, testing, these species were separated from the main tiger salamander species. Tiger salamanders are efficient predators, but they are also prey for badgers, snakes, and birds. The larvae are also prey for fish, and in some areas of the US, they are popular fishing bait. Tiger salamanders are major transmitters of the ranavirus as well, which can affect reptiles, other amphibians, and even fish. It seems a large reason this disease is able to move from water system to water system might be the use of larval tiger salamanders as bait. Tiger salamanders, as I mentioned earlier, are found throughout the US as well as parts of Canada and Mexico. Because of this, they're listed as a species of least concern with regards to whether or not they're endangered. It seems the greatest threat to the species is the disappearance of wetlands and vernal pools. Vernal pools are pools that are around for part of the year, but do eventually dry up for the other part. These pools are very important to the tiger salamanders as they do not have fish in them. So there are fewer predators for the young and they're able to have a higher success rate. Well, that's it for this episode's animal spotlight section. What do you think of tiger salamanders? And if you have any suggestions of species, um, to feature, please let us know at questions at biome.media. Also, with regards to the what do you think of tiger salamander question, if you have Spotify, feel free to leave us a voice message. It should be on the, um, on the podcast page and let us know what you think. I'll play the voice messages in the next episode. It's time for the technical section of the episode. This section is to highlight some of the concepts, theories, ideas, processes, or pathways in the world of zoology or ecology. This episode, we're going to look at the process and idea of metamorphosis. Most people know the general idea of metamorphosis to mean change, since the word has become fairly common in everyday language. But what kind of change does it refer to? Which animals go through metamorphosis? And what does it entail in different animals? In a zoological sense, metamorphosis is a process that some species go through that changes them from their larval form into their adult form. For example, the change that a tadpole goes through to turn into a frog or a caterpillar into a butterfly are both considered metamorphosis. While the process that changes a caterpillar into a butterfly is very different from the change that a tadpole undergoes to become a frog, they are both still examples of metamorphosis. Animals like birds, mammals and reptiles don't undergo metamorphosis because the young already look like miniature versions of the adults. Sure, Certain parts of the body might grow at different speeds, but on whole, the body doesn't change too much. Metamorphosis is seen in many groups of animals, from the very strange cnidaria, which are your jellyfish, 
corals and sea anemones to bony fish to the more commonly thought of insects and amphibians. So let's dive into some how some animals undergo metamorphosis and what it actually means for them. As mentioned earlier, cnidaria are your corals, jellyfish and anemones. They are a group of animals comprising of about 11,000 species. There are a few things that tie the group together nicely, one of which is the presence of cnidocytes. Cnidocytes are specialized cells that occur, that occur in the members of the cnidaria that are used in the capture of prey. Basically, cnidocytes, also known as nettle cells, shoot a harpoon out and sting their prey. However, these harpoons, much like man-made harpoons, are connected to the cell that they are shot from by a thread. This allows the cnidaria to hold their prey once they are overcome by the venom that some of these harpoons inject into the victim. Now, we're not here to talk about these fascinating hunting tactics. I could make a podcast that lasts about a day um, if I wanted to. No, instead we're here to talk about their form of metamorphosis. Cnidaria exist in two forms throughout their lives. And their form of metamorphosis is very strange because of it. We'll look at a high-level version of it, but when we talk about cnidaria in a subsequent episode, we will look into their form of metamorphosis in more detail. They have a stationary polyp stage and a medusa stage. The polyp stage is attached to either other polyps or to a rock, so it stays in one place. The medusa stage is actually what we see when we look at a jellyfish. The corals are what we see when we look at a cnidaria in a polyp stage of their lives, but they are both very different animals. The medusa stage is the swimming stage and usually the stage that breeds with other members of the species. We will cover why it's important to make that distinction in a future episode. Insects are another group that generally undergoes metamorphosis and their form is a little more widely known. Before we jump into the two types of metamorphosis found in insects, let's talk about the zygentoma. They are a group of insects commonly known as silverfish. In South Africa, we used to call them fish moths. Don't ask me why though, they are small, elongated silver insects and unlike moths, they have no wings. So I have absolutely no idea why we call them that. But they are also referred to as silverfish. What makes these little creatures so different from other insects is that they are the only group of insect that does not undergo metamorphosis. This means that their type of growth is called ametaboly. However, there are two types of metamorphosis and they are known as hemimetaboly or partial metamorphosis and holometaboly or complete metamorphosis. Hemimetaboly or partial metamorphosis is found in some insects like a few families in the order Hemiptera, which are your true bugs. If you're trying to think what those look like, just think of stink bugs. It's also found in your Odonata, which are your dragonflies and damselflies, your Plecoptera, which are your stoneflies, and your Ephemeroptera, which are your mayflies. Hemimetaboly is characterized by the fact that the animal does not go through a pupil stage. So, for example, butterflies change from a caterpillar into a cocoon and then into a butterfly. 
This cocoon is known as the pupil stage. The insects that go through hemimetaboly don't go through this pupil stage. We'll look more into it in another episode since there is so much to go through, but with hemimetabolous insects, with each molt the insect becomes closer to the adult form until it goes through its last molt. Since insects have an exoskeleton made of hard chitin, the insect has to shed as it grows larger. Every time the young insect grows larger, they change slightly until the final molt at which point they get wings and generally reproductive organs. Now, in the case of an insect that goes through hollow metaboly or complete metamorphosis, the insect has to go through a cocoon or pupil stage. Like all things about insects, the nature and systems used in pupil stages vary widely. However, there are some similarities. The most famous of insects that go through the pupil stage are by far your butterflies and moths. But there are ants and beetles that go through it as well. Bees and wasps as well as fleas and caddisflies also go through the pupil stage. Even regular flies and mosquitoes go through the pupil stage. Each stage in the life cycle of all of these animals seem to have a purpose. In the larval stage, the insects are focused solely on eating as much as they can and building up their fat stores. In the pupil stage, they are focused on becoming the best version of themselves. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they are focused on becoming adults. Generally, pupa are stationary and where they form is basically where the adults emerge. However, there are some pupa that are able to move around still, like mosquitoes for example. Then, once they emerge, the adults are preoccupied with passing on their genes to the next generation and making sure the eggs are laid in the safest possible way and location. In amphibians, metamorphosis looks quite different again. If we think of a frog, for example, you can see the young tadpoles look nothing like the adult frog. The frogs go through a complete change. In metamorphosis, <laughs> In amphibians, their metamorphosis is controlled and guided by the levels of a hormone in their blood. This hormone is called thyroxine and is produced in the thyroid gland. Frogs, toads, salamanders and newts all hatch from an egg and have external gills that they use to breathe underwater. They all have tails and lateral line organs. The lateral line system is found in fish as well as young amphibians. It is a group of sensory organs that are spread out in a line on either side of the organism's body. They help with sensing movement, vibrations and pressure gradients in the surrounding water. During metamorphosis, these features are either reduced or disappear completely and the organism grows legs, lungs and in some species a bottom jaw, all of which allow them to live out of the water. However, there are some species, like the axolotl, that never go through metamorphosis. Instead, they retain the juvenile characteristics throughout their lives. So they retain the gills and they still live in an aquatic environment. And they don't grow lungs throughout their lives, even as an adult. That is a high level idea of what metamorphosis is. As we go through each and as we look at a species from each group, we will go through it in more detail in that group. But for now, that is it for our technical section. And if you have any suggestions for what can be done in a subsequent technical section, 
be sure to leave us a note. Well, that is the end of the show for today. But before we head off, I just wanted to remind you of the trivia question for this episode. What part of their body do butterflies use to taste with? Be sure to send your answers to questions at biome.media or you can go to www.biome.media and use the contact form to get a shout out and show all your friends how knowledgeable you are about the natural world. Also, make sure you visit the site and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode. And feel free to read our field notes while you're there. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. They are always appreciated. I hope you have a great two weeks ahead of you and I will see you in the next episode. Until then, don't forget to ask questions. It's the foundation of science after all.